If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a great guest today. I'm actually very pleased and excited to be talking to Jeff Goins. I was telling Jeff right before we got on the interview that while I was still working for a corporate job, Jeff was one of the main blogs that I used to read to help me get inspired to try and start my own online business and online entrepreneurial journey and adventure. So it's um, interesting how the universe works that many, many years down, um, I get to be talking to Jeff about his life and his business after he's um, invested so much in my life without actually knowing me or meeting me. So I'm pleased to have Jeff on the show today. Jeff is a widely recognized internet phenom and celebrity, although he's very down to earth and you wouldn't know it. He started his blog out of a need to make some money to support his wife and his family because they had a baby on the way, which is uh, the baby effect that typically tends to show up in many entrepreneurs' life. In about a year and a half to two years, he started making six figures and effectively replaced the income of himself and his wife. Today, he's the author of about five books. He contributes to many large, major publications like Business Insider. He also teaches thousands of students how to do exactly what he did to achieve wealth and success through writing. He's a coach to hundreds of people, showing them the steps to go through to become better, more influential writers. And he's just an all-round creative artist that teaches people how to live their creative dreams. So his new book is titled Real Artists Don't Starve, and it shows you a philosophical and realistic approach on how to make money from your art. So I'm pleased to have Jeff on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, and his entrepreneurial adventure. So with that said, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Chi. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. That was a wonderful, very kind introduction. Thanks a lot, Jeff. So um, I gave the listeners a little bit of background about you, but Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started. How did you become Jeff Goins, so to speak? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I became Jeff Goins. (laughs) When my mom and dad got together and <laughs> fell in love. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm 34 and I've been doing, I've been running this online business for six years. And as you mentioned, I write books and then also help writers and authors succeed uh, with their creative work, particularly through blogging and online marketing and business. And uh, I got into this because uh, my first job out of college, my first real job out of college was as a marketing director for a nonprofit. I didn't know anything about marketing, but I, I kind of figured it out on the job. I started out as a copywriter and then eventually uh, started the first marketing department at this organization. And uh, I did that for almost seven years. And during that time, my my love for writing, which is something I'd always had but never really taken seriously, started to come back. And I saw the ways that the internet could help ideas spread 
and I had a number of different blogs, at least eight different blogs that had all failed. And I was passionate about getting my message out there, but I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know how to get it out there. And so I started studying blogs. I started seeing that blogging was a way that uh, writers were getting attention around their work. And uh, in 2010, at the end of the year, I started a new blog. And as you mentioned, that was um, around the time when my wife and I started thinking about having a family. And then in 2011, I grew the blog to tens of thousands of readers. And by the end of the year, we were pregnant with our first child. And, and so I had this audience and I heard that you could monetize this, that you could make money off of it. I didn't know how to do that. And so I just started experimenting with that, um, doing a lot of uh, surveys and emails to my audience, just asking them questions on how I could better serve them. And I kept getting responses on how to be a better blogger and how to be a better writer and just some of the things that I had done. And so in 2012, I ended up publishing two books, uh, one self-published and one with a traditional publisher and um, launched an online course that I still teach today called Tribe Writers. And that was the year where I replaced my income. I also replaced my wife's income and we tripled our household income that year. And it was unexpected. I was just trying to supplement, supplement my wife's income so that she could stay home and raise our son, which is what she wanted to do. And we couldn't afford for her to do it. And we ended up both quitting our jobs that year, going all in on this business. And we've been doing it ever since. That's great. Now, you mentioned a lot of things in your brief bio. So I just want to pick up on one or two things first. You, I know you studied um, Spanish in college and also... <laughs> yeah. And you were also a member of a band after college, yes. right? That's right. Uh -huh. So you worked in a band for a couple of years. So how did you develop the passion for writing? Because you telling your story now, I see that you didn't actually start the blog to make money. It was a passion. You failed eight times at blogging, but yet you still kept persisting until you finally hit the one thing that works. And I know a lot of people these days are like, oh, I'm going to open a blog and I'm going to make money right away putting Google AdWords and AdSense. But looking at your trajectory, you actually worked on the craft and you also had like skill sets from your your studies as a liberal arts major. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. came into this. So tell us a little bit about, you know, those little things, those little ingredients that led you to building the passion for writing before actually right. doing the writing. Yeah, I love the word ingredients there. It was it was a bunch of ingredients when you put them all together and you came out with a, with a cake or with a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah. And I like what Derek Siver says about this. He says, what's obvious to you is amazing to others. So I never really thought about a lot of the stuff that I do today, particularly helping writers grow in their craft and uh, get the attention that they deserve and even getting paid for their work um, because these were just things that were pretty obvious to me for most of my life. And I think the first person that this came from was my mom. So a few things that kind of contributed, a few ingredients, uh, if you will. The first ingredient was – uh, when we would go on family vacations, we would go on road trips, we would drive to different places, uh, my mom would read me the dictionary. My mom always loved words and writing and she was very particular about grammar and English. And she wasn't – I mean she, she wasn't great at a, at a lot of subjects in school but she was really good 
at English. And, and so how you spoke and how you communicated yourself, particularly in writing, was very important to my mom. And it became very important to me. And then I never played sports. And in sixth grade, I entered the school spelling bee. And I won. I won the, the school spelling bee. And I was a sixth grader. And I beat an eighth grader. And uh, he went home crying that day, I heard. And that was the only time as a sixth grader <laughs> that I ever made an eighth grader cry. And so, you know, there were all these things that were happening that were weird. They were different. They weren't, you know, it wasn't normal, yeah. but it felt normal to me. And so in when I was a teenager, I started a band and I loved writing songs. I just, I loved it. I, there was, I liked creating things and sharing them with people. And when I was in college, I thought, I thought about maybe being an English major and then just decided that wasn't very practical. And so then I, I studied Spanish and when I would get really stressed in college, I would go to the computer lab and I would write a story or an essay. I would write something and I would email it to myself because Dropbox didn't exist at the time. And I would save that draft as an email. And, and so writing was the thing that I was always returning to. I was always coming back to it. It was the most familiar thing I knew. So when I was 27, 28, um, working a job that I didn't love, but I didn't hate. And I, I knew that some change needed to happen. Yes. I was hearing about online business. I was hearing about blogging. I was hearing about all these different things. I was trying to find my dream G and, and I didn't know what it was. And, and so I just started remembering back to these moments and there's a, an author named Parker Palmer. And he likes to say, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. Mm. And so as I began to remember these moments from my life, because I was at this crisis, I was going, I, yeah. I don't want to stay in this job. I don't know what's next for me. Mm -hmm. What can I do? And when I began listening to my life, I realized that it was telling me that I was supposed to be a writer. Hmm. And it sounds to me like with every hero, there's always that point where you have to dig deep and figure out who you are who you're going to be and then yes. the reinvention process takes place kind of like you met metamorphose is that the word i believe like um yeah. like a what do they call it? a caterpillar becomes a butterfly right. right so you go in you withdraw you sit down you think you plan and then from the inside out you transform and become this new person so you basically return to all the things that had made up the tapestry of your life over the years and then you now sat down you now thought that hey man i am a writer it's not that i want to be a writer i already right. am a writer that's right yeah so in many ways i felt like i was in this cocoon for years and i was trying to find my dream a friend of mine asked me what is your dream i said i don't know and i was really just afraid to admit it and he looked at me and he said well that's weird because i would have thought you're dream was to be a writer. I mean, it just kind of seems obvious to me. And when he said that, I mean, it just hit me. I, I felt those words. It was like getting the wind knocked out of me. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to be a writer someday. He just looked at me again and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And it was this really interesting moment for me where I thought, what if this thing that I am striving to be I already am. And now I just 
I just need to be it and act as if I am this way. Mm. And I don't believe that we fake it till we make it, but I do think that we believe it till we become it. Mm-hmm. And and that may sound like a semantic difference, but it's pretty significant to me. If you're faking it till you, you're making it, there is this voice in the back of your head that says you're a pretender, yeah. you're a fake, yeah. you're an amateur. Whereas for me, it's like saying you – are a prince like you are the heir of you know this entire land and mm-hmm. it all belongs to you now you just have to act like a king right you have to yeah. act like a ruler something like that and so what well, my friend says you are a writer now you just need to act like it that was significant to me it was like emerging from the cocoon not knowing how to use the wings you know like it still felt new to me but it was it was it was far more important than just trying to be something. And so um, I do think this is the act of becoming an entrepreneur or an artist or changing the story that your life is telling. The understanding of identity of who you really are is very important because whatever we believe about ourselves has a way of coming true. I think that mm-hmm. activity follows identity. Yeah. So if if you want to go, you know, start a blog and make some money, that's cool. But spend some time asking yourself, who am I really? Mm. And and it's not just entrepreneur. You know, it's not just business owner or blogger like who are you at your core and once you understand that i think that is the center uh, from which all of your best work will come that's that's very powerful stuff so staying on that subject a little more when we figure out who we are because as you mentioned that i know after reading your book real artists don't stop i remember the part where you were talking about michelangelo who who believed that he was um related <laughs> to some no, noble clan or noble yes. family in um, the right. Renaissance time, and because of that belief that he was descended from royalty, he acted in that manner, and that's why he was able to actually build up the level of uh, credibility and success just because he wouldn't let anybody put him down, even though his family circumstance did not show that noble bearing so to speak right yeah 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 i I love that story it's very interesting basically michelangelo was told his whole uh youth from his parents and family that they were um noble that they had some noble blood in them and when he became an artist uh, artists were not well paid in the early renaissance he decided he was going to be an aristocrat of artists he was going to be the best highest paid uh, artist that ever lived. And that's what he became. He became the Renaissance's richest artist. And not only that, the richest artist who had ever lived at that time. And he broke the glass ceiling for creatives in the Renaissance. And there were many wealthy artists who followed in his footsteps, uh, footsteps uh, later on. And years later, um, Historians found out that it wasn't true, that he actually wasn't descended from noble blood. But because he believed it, he became it. And so the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are or who we can be are very, very important. And I like to tell people if I'm working with um, you know, students of my courses, coaching clients, whatever, if you think you can't, you won't. Mm. Right? It's it's that whole Henry Ford quote, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah, and so what we believe about what's possible 
for our, ourselves and our own success is very important. And I, I don't want you to run around, you know, pretending that you're somebody that you're not. Mm-hmm. But if you have this voice in the back of your head that says, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, that's going to affect your work. Yeah. And so it is this process of believing it, then behaving as if it's true, and then eventually becoming it. And that's what Michelangelo did. He believed that he was noble, so then he acted like a noble person, and he actually became a very aristocratic artist. He was the wealthiest artist of his time. So but how does someone deal with that um that voice that says you're not good enough or you can't do it? You know, that head trash or that imposter syndrome as it were. That especially when it comes to being a creative artist, because you look around and you say, Hey, I want to make something new and I want to create and I want to put a dent in the universe, but I don't feel good enough. I don't know if people are going to ridicule me or are going to laugh at me. I don't know if my work is going to be accepted, you know. Maybe I should keep to myself and keep working on my art how how does someone get the confidence to start stepping out and living their belief i don't think that you get the confidence and act i think that you act your way into confidence okay the most successful bravest people i know have told me when i'm doing this thing you know if i'm a speaker and i'm stepping up on stage when i'm writing a book when i'm running my business when I'm doing this, when I'm at major moments, I am scared to death, they tell me. Yeah. And I, I just thought that very successful people, like eventually they got over it. They got confident. Uh, they got unafraid. And maybe that's true for some people. Every person that I want to be like, whose success I admire, is not that way. I, I asked a, a mentor of mine, I said, when did you stop being afraid of doing big things? They said, never. I've I've always felt afraid when I was doing something big that was risky. And I thought, well, what is the difference then between these very successful people and the rest of us? And I think the difference is they have learned the art of doing things while they're afraid. Whereas those of us who feel fear tend to just shrink back and go, well, I can't do that because I'm afraid. And fear becomes a signpost in the journey to success. Yeah. It reminds you Hey, the la- remember the last big thing that you did and you felt afraid and you did it anyway and it was amazing? If you're feeling afraid now, that is a reminder. It is a sign that you are on the right track towards something significant. So I think we need to stop thinking about how do I get over this? How do I get brave? How do I acquire confidence? Instead, how do I learn to act in spite of my fear? Fear becomes a friend, an ally that's joins you on your journey to where you want to go. And it's not fun. I'm not saying fear is fun, but we need to stop waiting for clarity or confidence. Mm. And we need to start acting our way into clarity and confidence because I believe that, um, the, like that action creates clarity. We're all waiting, uh, before we're willing to do big things. Like we're, Mm -hmm. we want clarity or we want confidence to do it. And the truth is permission. Yeah, the clarity and confidence that you're seeking comes with the action that you're afraid to take. So act your way into clarity. Act your way into confidence. The more you do it, the more clarity and confidence will come. But fear will probably always be present when you're doing big things. And that's a good thing. Okay, now we've talked a lot about mindset. Now what about the the doing of it, so taking the actual action? So what were some of the steps you took 
to make to help you become a better writer? What are some of the disciplines you put in place to help you hone your craft even better as you started writing full time professionally, or even before? So the first step. Yeah. So the first step I, I mentioned was that conversation that I had with a friend where he says, you are a writer, you just need to write. Do you think it's important for every writer, creative, entrepreneur, whatever you aspire to be, you start calling yourself that thing now so that you begin to orient your identity and then your activity ar around this reality. You are this thing. Now go act like it. So for me, Calling myself a writer was a big move because it made me act like a professional, not an amateur. The mm -hmm. second thing was equally important. I began to act as if it were true, and I thought, well, what do writers do? And so my friend said, you are a writer. You just need to write. The next day, because I started calling myself a writer, I put it on my business cards. I, I bought a, a blog domain called goingswriter.com. I began acting like a writer, and so the next day at 5 a.m., I woke up early and started writing. I did it every single day for a year. That was six years ago. I'm still doing that today. Wow. And so daily writing is a very important part of the process. You have to practice. Hmm. Uh, the third thing that I did was I took my practice public. I shared that work on a blog, mm -hmm. and, and I'm still doing this today. I'm writing every day, and I'm sharing my blog articles about once a week on my blog. So if you're uh, a digital entrepreneur, you know maybe that means sharing on Facebook what you're doing for your clients. You know, I see I see lots of people running Facebook ads, and so on Facebook they're talking about, <laughs> hey, I help this client do this, and I help that you know person do that. Yeah. Or if you're a visual artist, maybe. You know, once a day on Instagram, you need to be sharing a work in progress that mm -hmm. you're working on. I know an I know an artist who does this on Instagram. He's not selling his art on Instagram. He's just going, here's something that I painted. Check it out. Almost every day, he gets a direct message from one of his followers saying, how much is that painting? And it, and they're not exorbitant. They're like three, four hundred bucks. Yeah. And he's selling almost a painting a day. Wow. doing this as an artist by simply sharing his work. So sharing your work is the best kind of marketing that you can do for your work, but it also keeps you honest. So if I could boil it down to three things, I mean, I think that's it. Start calling yourself a writer, artist, entrepreneur, because you mm -hmm. have to um, own the identity before you can see the activity. Two, do some sort of daily practice to make you better and better and better at it. And then three, share your work, some piece of it, every single day uh, with an audience. Man, that's fantastic. So on that note, you mentioned something that I just wanted to um, discuss a little bit more, which is doing work that will last for the long term. And versus doing something that is um, just for the short term or maybe a fad. I think um, Ryan Holiday's new book talks about creating the perennial seller. That is doing yep. one great artistic work that will live on forever and continue to generate perpetual income for the rest of your life versus doing something that is not going to last that long. So how does a creative artist learn how to create a perennial seller, something that is um, evergreen and eternal. Like your books will continue to sell because they always sell because you've written on timeless topics. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I think Ryan's book, uh, Perennial Seller, is a great uh, primer on this for sure. Um, there's a few things that I've learned from him and from my own experience on this. And I don't think I'm a master at this, but I'm trying to do better and better with this. Uh, one thing is to, if you're going to tell stories, um, use proven timeless examples. I remember reading an article one time about how Malcolm Gladwell never uses new stories in his books. And it's true. I mean, he doesn't use typically uh, very newsworthy stories. The stories are at least 10 to hundreds of years old. Mm. And, in, you know, in Outliers, he told the story of Bill Gates, which at that time, you know, that story was 20 years old. I mean, a contemporary uh, success story, but still not something that's, you know, headlines today. And the idea here is if you want to if you want somebody to be reading your writing, if you want somebody to be consuming your work 10, 20, 100 years from now, you can't use a bunch of material that dates it, that feels too contemporary. So I, I've learned that. Like I like old stuff. I like telling old stories and sharing older ideas, not that are obsolete but that have endured because if something has endured for 10, 20, 50 years, it will probably endure for another 10, 20 or 50 years. And that's actually something that I learned directly from Ryan. He talks about that in his book. Um, I also think that what I am interested in is not tactics but strategy, which yeah. sounds maybe a little bit nuanced. A tactic is Facebook ads, well, yeah. right? Yep. That may work now, but it may not work in you know five years from now. Mm -hmm. A strategy is uh, get people's permission before you try to sell them something, yeah. right? Uh, and I, I love this about Seth Godin. He uses a lot of stories in his books. He shares a lot of practical examples and illustrations. But what he's always getting at is the idea behind the work, right? In permission marketing, he tells stories of all these different businesses that, you know, some of which have come and gone. But the ideas, the strategies still remain, which is, uh, you know, strangers become friends, friends become customers. Like that will never not be true, yeah. no matter what happens in the business world or what happens in the marketplace. 50 years from now, people probably won't be using Facebook ads to sell their products. Maybe they will, uh, but I almost guarantee that you'll have to find a channel where people are already showing up to find a way to interrupt those people in that channel, mm -hmm. then incentivize them to come back to your channel, mm -hmm. and then begin a communication relationship with them where you can eventually sell them something or try to you know, persuade them in some way to do something. So focusing on strategies over tactics uh, is you know, just kind of personally gratifying to me, and, and it's, it's where my head lives most of the time. I think about ideas, and of course we all want practicalities. But I think the the question behind this tactic is what is the strategy guiding this? Because yeah. once you learn the why behind the how, if that tactic becomes irrelevant, you can take that strategy and you can apply it to the new channel, the yeah. new medium, the, the you know, the new piece of technology. That and telling timeless stories, I mean, those two things together um can contribute to creating timeless work. I think the last thing I, I want to say on that is um, your, uh, the things that you do to promote your work now, um, can either contribute to your work success years from now, or it can hurt it. And what mm. I mean by that is this, um, if you push the work, if it feels too, like too high pressure, 
right now. Like buy my book, buy my book. It's going away. Like use all the urgency, all the scarcity. You create – you can get people to buy your work now, uh, but it can hurt the long-term success of your work. Yeah. And I first I first saw this exemplified um, with a, a guy named Ben Arments who ran uh, a conference called Story, which was a conference for creatives and artists. And he did it for years. And I kept hearing about it in my you know little circle of bloggers and creatives that I knew. And I kept saying, hey, I'm going to go to that someday. And I would tweet at him and he would go, that's that's great, you know. Next, you know, if you didn't didn't get there this year, next year will be better. And then he wrote a blog post about this one time, which I thought was really fascinating. He said, when people tell me, oh, I missed it, you know, this year, uh, I don't like do the FOMO thing where I go, yeah, you missed it. <laughs> uh, I tell them that's okay. Next year will be better. And, and he said, with this conference, we are trying to achieve this vision and we haven't quite gotten there yet. But every year we get closer. Mm. So if you missed this year, it's okay. Every year gets better. So I'm excited for you to come next year because it's going to be even better. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty counterintuitive in a culture of urgency where if you miss it, you're never going to get it again, yeah. right? Yeah. Even in online marketing. And so look, I get the I get the scarcity thing. I get the urgency thing. There's a place for that. But if you're writing a book – if you're building a business, if you want if, – if the thing you're building you want to exist 10 years from now, mm-hmm. I think there's value in saying, oh, you missed it this week or you didn't buy it when it came out. That's OK. It's still going to be here next week, next year, um, and it will be even better then. The patient persistence of saying people are going to come and go. They're going to pressure you. They're going to make money. They're going to go broke. I'm still going to be here in 10 years doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. That's relieving to people. So I think those three things are are helpful ways to create work that doesn't guarantee that it will endure but um, sets it up for success. And I think we can sense that. I think we can sense when somebody's trying to get our attention now, mm-hmm. they're trying to sell us something now versus somebody saying, hey, I'm still going to be here. Right, I'm still yeah. I'm, my my band is still going to be touring five years from now. Uh, I'm still going to be writing books twenty years from now. Uh, the business hopefully will still be here a decade later. There is a sense of ease as a customer and a consumer mm-hmm. that we feel when we I- encounter brands like that. Yeah, and I, it just reminds me of like some of the timeless musicians that I listen to. Like take for example, some, I don't know if you've heard of Shade Adu. Like she was very big in the seventies <laughs> and eighties, but um, yeah. while I was living in Tallahassee, I think she had about one or two concerts, and I mean she hasn't been singing for a long time. But because it was her, you know, I I heard about it. I went to Ticketmaster the day before, and then all of a sudden on the day of, like on midnight, I go refresh my screen. All the tickets are sold out, and I ask my friends in class, I'm like, "Hey, did you guys buy this ticket?" They were like, "Yeah, that we were all." sitting on our phones and on our laptops that this is the first time or the last time she's going to be in in florida you know we just had to take a chance to see that and these are people that were not born when she was born i wasn't born when she was really in her prime but because of the timelessness of the work you know you can just show up and say hey i'm here you know come listen to my song and then people flock to it so it's one of those things you have to think about that if you learn your craft so well it doesn't matter what new thing i think um 
there are some guys that do auto tune on or something like that now right. with music. Yeah, yeah those right. things are going to like fade away. But a classic yeah. singer that knows her stuff and brings out the emotion in you will never go out of style or fashion. Right. Yeah. Agreed. I love that. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the strategy of your business, but um, this is the bulletproof entrepreneur. The listeners want the entrepreneurial part of um, Jeff. So, Jeff, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you make money today. What's your business model like in your business? Yeah. Um, so I write books. That's um, one big um, revenue stream. I write a book about every other year. And um, when I'm not doing that, when I'm not working on a book, I sell online courses and um, we teach writers and creatives how to do online marketing and get paid for their work through blogging, social media, and, and digital technology. And uh, and then I think the third revenue stream, I mean, there's lots of revenue streams, but like the third major revenue streams for me are speaking and events. So I either go mm. speak at somebody else's event or host my own, and that's in the form of our annual tribe conference, yeah, uh, which is a yearly gathering that we do here in Nashville where I live. And then I do smaller uh, workshop uh, events about quarterly. And so all of those things are based around our uh, online curriculum where we teach uh, writers how to succeed with their work, how to get published and paid uh, for their writing. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's the main thing is I basically say I, I write books and, and work with publishers and, and sell those books. And then I also... Um, teach writers how to succeed through online courses and events. Mm. Now, now to do all that, I'm sure you must have started at a point where, I mean, you already mentioned it, but you started at a point where you didn't have customers. You didn't have a large following as you do now. So for a lot of people listening that are either a thinking of starting a blog, thinking of becoming an author or speaker or a podcast host, how did how did you or how would you advise them to go about getting their um, first one thousand subscribers? Because I believe that's that's where things tend to really really kick it up. Once you're able to get one thousand fans following your work, is when you can really say you can start making a good living out of whatever it is your creative art is. Yeah, well, I I have a friend who's just a genius at this. I highly recommend you follow Brian Harris. Um, Video find Fruit. Him at, yes, videofruit.com. Yeah. He's he's brilliant at this. Even has a course teaching people how to get their first 10,000 subscribers. Yeah. And um one of the things that he teaches that I think makes a lot of sense is the strategy that you use to get from 0 to 100 is going to be different from the strategy that you you use to get from 100 to 1000 or 1000 yep. to 10,000. Yep. So first identify where you're at if you're if you're less than if you have less than 100 subscribers then you just need to go knock on doors mm. you need to ask facebook friends you need to text your colleagues you know you need to cuz you have 100 friends you have 100 people yeah. that you're influencing and if you don't think you do then go to facebook and i guarantee you have more than 100 yeah. friends and if you don't go find go go find 100 friends but Almost everybody has over 100 friends. They've got hundreds of friends on Facebook. So find 100 of those people who want to hear what you have to say. 
um, if you have over 100 people, then you need to be thinking about how you can show up in other people's channels. I just spoke with a writer uh, earlier today, Ryan McRae, who runs a website called theadhdnerd.com. Mm. He told me how in a year he got over 1,000 subscribers. How did he do this? Well, he wrote a bunch of articles in other people's websites and then linked back to his website where he was giving away a free ebook. And he got uh, over a thousand subscribers doing that. Today, he's got uh, over twenty six hundred people subscribing to his email list. Mm. Uh, he did it through a lot of hard work. He did it yeah. by uh, not just nurturing his own community, but by going to other people's communities, offering free content, yeah. and then hoping that people that like that content would go back to his website and check out his work, which they did. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean I think tactically that's how you can do that. You need obviously a website. Uh, you need some sort of lead magnet, an ebook or an email course, something that people can get for free from you by um, opting into your email list. And then I think like a less tactical thing that you need but is still you know very important is you need – uh, a subject or a topic or an idea uh, that feels urgent to people. Mm. So when I started writing, uh, you know, I was talking about uh, how to be a better writer and how to grow your audience as a writer. Uh, this is this is something that people, you know, worry about. You know, how to write a book, how to get your work published. These are things that my audience that keeps them awake at night. Right? Yeah. Uh, Ryan Ryan McRae, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, I have ADHD. How do I deal with this? How do I remember everything? How do I uh, not get distracted? How do I organize my life? These are things that people with ADHD worry about and stay up late, you know, thinking about. So Ryan is meeting a very urgent, immediate need. And I know lots of writers who start a blog or a podcast. You know, uh, um, you don't have to be a writer. You know, I know lots of people who do this sort of thing, and they're starting with their passion, which is fine. But your passion in and of itself is not enough to uh, build an audience. I don't think you should start with your passion. I think you should be passionate about it. Mm -hmm. I think you should start with the need. What do people need? Mm -hmm. What do you have? As I mentioned earlier, that you know, as Derek Siver says, something that is obvious to you that is amazing to others. And you may have to experiment with this. You may have to ask other people. Yeah. So you need you need to be meeting some sort of urgent, immediate need. Mm -hmm. You need to have a blog or website. You need to have a lead magnet. And then you need to start showing up in other people's channels consistently and then pointing people back to your website. If you do that over and over and over again, you're going to get 1,000 subscribers. Well, there you have it. I don't think there's too much we can say to that. So that's just powerful enough and it stands on its own. So let's talk a little bit about the new book, Real Artists Don't Starve. So why did you write the book? I wrote this book because I was tired of hearing that if you're going to be an artist or a creative or a writer or a musician, whatever, you're going to have to starve. There's no money in that. I think the story of the starving artist is a myth. Oh. And a myth is not something that is necessarily untrue. A myth is a story that you tell yourself to help you make sense of the reality around you. So the story in the Bible of how God created the heavens and the earth, that's called the creation myth. Mm -hmm. uh, the story of how George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and then confessed to it, that's a patriotic myth. 
and, and, and the story of Santa Claus is a myth. But some myths can be true. If we believe them, they become true to us. So when Michelangelo was told that he descended from nobility and that it was part of his calling in life to restore his family name to um, a place of honor, that was a myth too. And because he believed it, it became true. It truly became true for him. And so I wrote this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, because I just wanted to, in a sentence, say one thing, which is this. Um, if, if you want to do creative work for, for a living, it's not only possible, it's probable, as long as you're willing to do the work. And the whole point of the book is being a starving artist today with all of the opportunities and technology available to creatives. And I use that word pretty loosely. You can be a creative entrepreneur. You can be an artist in the, if you're a baker. You can be an artist if you're uh, a writer or you're selling something on Etsy. You know, mm -hmm. that's a very broad definition. Yeah. An artist is somebody who shares their creative gift with the world. So being a starving artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing your creative work. And the whole point of the book is listing case stuff, case study after case study yeah. of artists who did not starve uh, and including contemporary stories of people who are killing it, who aren't famous, but they're successful because they're doing the things that successful creatives have always done. And in the book, I lay out what those things are. Okay, so um, I know you mentioned case studies of contemporary people, but the in the book you broke it down into three parts, which is mindset, market, and money. And obviously, being um, a finance fellow, I think I skipped over to the um, to the money yeah. part first. And the first thing I saw there was don't work for free. And it just reminds me of the popular advice that you always hear that oh go work for someone for free, get some experience. And then after you've worked for free, then you can start your, your business or then you can ask for the job or whatever it is. So it's um, counterintuitive to see you saying don't work for free. And um, I think I just remember the, the saying from, I think it was Batman, the Dark Knight Rises, where the Joker said mm -hmm. something like, yeah. if, if you're good at something, never do it for free or something. So talk a little bit about this one, and then we'll talk about the two parts of the book, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tie it up together with some of the stories of people that are actually not starving and they are thriving artists. Yeah. So the idea here is you always need to work for something. So never do your work for free. And I love that quote by the Joker, by the way without knowing what you're going to get out of it. And the thing that you get out of it should be more than experience or that people will talk about you. Yeah. So if you're a speaker and you got to go speak to someone, they don't have a speaking budget. That doesn't mean necessarily that you shouldn't do that, mm -hmm. but you need to get something out of that experience because your time, your talent is worth money. It's yeah. worth something. So an example of, you know, how do you get something out of this? Well, you could uh, ask that event planner for connections to five other event planners and make it very clear. Look, I'm doing this. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, but you know, I can't just work for free. So I need you to introduce me to some other event planners, or maybe they have an AV system and you need a speaker reel cause you're a new speaker and you, you ask for a copy of, uh, your talk, you know, in audio and, and video of it. I mean, that's worth potentially thousands of dollars. If you yeah. were to hire a video crew and say, Hey, I need a speaker reel. 
So, I mean, that's an example where you're working for something. But I know so many people, creatives, creatives in particular, who um, whether they're starting a consulting or a coaching business, whether they're doing paintings or photography or writing, they're just doing their work for free, free gig after free gig after free gig, thinking that somehow this is going to lead to a paid gig when in reality, because they're working for nothing, they are setting a precedent that their mm -hmm. work isn't worth anything. Yeah. And so at, as creatives, I think we need to charge what we're worth because it forces us to value the work mm -hmm. and eventually, obviously, it allows us to get paid to do it. Yeah. Then, so what about the mindset aspect of um, the book? You said one thing that um, you're not, you're, uh, I beg your pardon. It says you aren't born an artist and then stop trying to be original. That means um, I, um, you shouldn't have to try and invent something just out of thin air you should always try to leverage off the work of other people that have come before you and just rearrange it and make it your own transform it and put your own little magic pixie dust so that when people see they say oh this is created by chi it might have been inspired by michelangelo or jeff goins or anybody else from the beginning but this is chi's signature right here mm -hmm. yeah so uh, i mean i think the idea that you're going to do original inspired work at the beginning of your career um, is is a misunderstanding of how creative work actually gets made. And so everybody from Michelangelo to Pablo Picasso to the uh, famous dancer and choreographer Twyla Tharp, they did their work. They found their voice not by – going on a mountaintop or a cabin in the woods and trying to be original, they found their voice by imitating other people's voices. Mm. In fact, Michelangelo's commission was a forgery where somebody paid him to create something that looked like it was from Roman antiquity, a statue, yeah. and then he sold it to a cardinal. And he they duped the cardinal, who was an art collector, and, and they tricked him. And then eventually he realized it was a forgery. And he was not mad. He was impressed, and he ended up hiring Michelangelo because in the Renaissance, the ability to copy somebody else's work was not something that you should be embarrassed about. It demonstrated that you were really great yeah. at what you did. And uh, you know, another example that I mentioned was um, Twyla Tharp. She's a dancer. And so in New York City, when she was trying to make it as a dancer, she would go into these uh, dance halls. And uh, in these studios, she would stand behind other dancers and she would literally mimic every move that they made. And she said in her book, Their Creative Habit, she was trying to get what it felt like to do that action into her bones, into her muscle memory. And so uh, she, she says um, – Skill gets imprinted by action. So you have to – if you want to get good at something, you have to copy the people who have come before you. Yeah. So the way that we get the original chi style is by copying a bunch of different people mm -hmm. and then finally assimilating it, curating it into what looks like your original work when in fact it's just a, your interpretation of what a bunch of other people are doing. Uh, but I like how the historian Will Durant says this. He says that nothing is new except arrangement. And so our job is to borrow business ideas and borrow design ideas and borrow songwriting ideas from all of these different influences. 
bring them together, and then rearrange them into this thing that people call our style. And um, the last thing we're going to talk about the book before we wrap up the show, because I don't want to give people too much about the book, let them go buy it on Amazon if they want to get the full gist of it, is um, one thing you mentioned here was you were talking about um, collaborating and working with others. And I know a lot of people always tend to believe that, oh, if they're going to do work, you know, they're a bit selfish. They want to work on their art on their own without getting the input or the support from other people because they see other people as competition and not necessarily mm -hmm. collaborators. So why is collaboration the best way to become a thriving, um, not starving artist? Yeah, because um, you don't do your best work alone and uh, I don't have to prove that to you. Just think about the biggest things that you've ever done or been a part of and honestly tell me that nobody inspired you, that nobody helped you, yeah. that even if you did that thing by yourself, nobody gave you the opportunity or the knowledge or the experience that made you really good at that thing. It doesn't happen. And, and some of the most creative inventions in history, I would argue all of them, were not the result of a solitary genius getting inspired, but rather they were a collaborative creation. It was a result of people coming together uh, and uh, sharing their talents and and bringing together something new and interesting where they're assimilating all of their influences into something greater than the sum of its parts. And so um, – yeah, I mean, you just look at history. You look at uh, the the birth of psychotherapy and modern psychology movement. It was the result of a collaborative circle of uh, thinkers like Sigmund Freud and his peers coming together, talking about the way the brain worked, as yeah. they understand it. You look at uh, literature and and the Inklings, which is a literary group that met in Oxford that was made up of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and over a dozen other. Uh, men who came together every week to talk about writing and they would share their works in progress. The Lord of the Rings would not exist, uh, if at all, um, but certainly not the way it does today were it not for the help and input of that group. You need the inspiration and the correction of your peers to help you do your best work. And so we have to collaborate uh, other people. I mean, look at the liner notes of almost every successful hip hop album, uh, and, and hip hop and rap artists uh, are great at this. Um, they're constantly collaborating with their peers. Um, uh, you know, you, you can you can look at um, a, any number of recent records that have been hits, and and you'll see that that the liner notes of writers and collaborators on those records are dozens, if not sometimes hundreds, of people long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's powerful stuff. And um, I think we're going to have to start wrapping up the show right now. So for all of you guys that are really excited about what Jeff has said about this new book, you really got to check it out on Amazon. So Jeff, before you go, tell us a little bit about uh, where people can find you and learn more about you and also get the book and your other books. Yeah, thanks, Chi. Um, you can find everything about me at my blog, goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S, 
writer.com. Uh, you can sign up for my email newsletter list where you're going to get you know, a free book on how to build your online audience and a bunch of other tips on writing, creativity, and online business. And uh, all my books are on Amazon, but you'll find all that stuff at goingswriter.com. That's the best place to go. That's great. And for, so you guys listening out there, check out Jeff's website. Just dig into his website. Even before you get his books, dig into the website. Go like mm. the first 20, 30 pages deep. Mm. Get, <laughs> get to the beginning of when Jeff was really honing his craft as a blogger and just digest all that stuff before you get the books because it'll really open up your mind, especially if you're thinking of doing something creative, whether you want to start a podcast, whether you want to be a writer, whether you want to write books. I believe the first place to start is dig into his blog first and then get his books and that will really magnify your learning. So Jeff, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show, my friend. Like I said, I got a lot of inspiration from you. I've gotten so much more inspiration today after spending 15 minutes. I can only, I can only imagine what you do to your clients when, when mm. they pay you for coaching and uh, consulting. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your words of wisdom with us on the show today. Thank you, Chi. It's my pleasure. Great. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.